Thank you for coming to First Hour, our equipping hour. I have been uh, tasked to teach on making disciples. Uh, lesson three, what is a true disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? So before we start here, I'll just pray for this time. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we can get together. We can search your word and we can just uh, receive it humbly, Lord. I just pray that your, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be with me, Lord, as I go about to teaching and sharing your word. Lord, I pray that you would just use your word to uh, guide us and how we can think about what a true disciple is as we look to follow you and to deny ourselves. In your name I pray, amen. What is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Are there such things as false disciples, people who believe they are Christians but in fact are not saved? Maybe you know someone who professes to be a Christian, but they have no desire to come to church, to be around the people of God, no desire to read their Bible, live a life of sin without a desire to change. Are all people who profess to be Christians saved? How are we to think about these things? What about those who, uh, who are apostates, those who claim to be Christians and hold to a faith in their past, but they renounced and they turned away and they denounced the faith? What does the Bible say about these people? Are they saved? We need to search God's word so we can think correctly about these situations. We need to have our minds transformed by the truth of his word so we can have a biblical view. First off, we're going to go over some definitions. I know you have some, uh, the handout there, the study sheet, this will be false disciples. A false disciple is simply someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but has no interest in obeying and following the teachings of Christ. In short, someone who is a false disciple has no interest in following after Jesus and submitting to his lordship. I also had a, a list there that I added of some characteristics of a false disciple. This is by no means a full list, but just some ideas of what characterizes a false disciple. And remember, a false disciple is someone who doesn't want to obey or follow Christ. Self-exaltation. False disciple is trying to exalt themselves. They have pride in themselves. They don't want to give honor and glory to God, who is rightly due that honor and glory. Next, unwilling to deny self. The Bible makes it very clear that everyone is born into sin. Those who are false disciples are not saved, and so they're still enslaved to their sin, unable to deny themselves, seeking after the pleasures of their flesh. Unwilling to take up their cross and follow Christ. This kind of correlates with unable to deny self. You know, the correlation of denying self is then taking up your cross and then following Christ. The putting off and then putting on. If you cannot put off the sins of the flesh, you cannot follow Christ. Um, point D there, unwilling to endure persecution. Those who are false disciples who proclaim to be Christians, who proclaim to be followers of Christ, um, 
will fall away from the faith when persecution and tribulation come in the name of Christ for that faith. Lastly here, just unwilling to let the cares of the world go. The world is at odds with God, is at in a war with God, contrary to God. And the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, um, is characterized by false disciples. They're worried about the things of the world and the world, and not the things of God. To contrast that, we look at characteristics and facts about true disciples. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who has been born again by the power of God through the good news of the gospel and is a new creation in Christ Jesus. They have been given a new nature and are committed to denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus. To contrast that with the points of the characteristics of the false disciples, a true disciple is exalting God, not self. That new nature causes them to deny themselves, to forsake their sin, to turn from it, and then to take up their cross and follow Christ. Not only putting off the old self, but putting on the new self. And they endure. They endure to the end. When uh, tribulation and persecution come for the sake of the gospel, God is the one who has given them that new nature that will preserve them. And they do not, and they, they, let care, they let go of the cares of the world. They understand that their citizenship is in heaven, not of this world. True believers, true disciples of Christ have been regenerated Regeneration refers to the process by which God brings a person out of the state of spiritual deadness and slavery to sin into a new life in Christ, thereby freeing them from the punishment and domain of sin. This is what we call being born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, we see Jesus answered and said to him, this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We see here that regeneration is a sovereign act. It's nothing that man can work for for himself. It is a sovereign act of his own glory. We have nothing to do with us being born of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to do with us being born of the Spirit, not as much as we had anything to do with us being born of water, us coming into this world. It is a sovereign act of God. Next point is salvation. A true believer is someone who has been granted salvation. They have been saved from God's wrath and punishment for their sin through the sacrificial and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. True disciples are one with Christ and have been granted the righteousness of Christ through their union with him. It's not only that our, that true believers' sins are paid for, they're free from the punishment of sin, 
and the domain of sin, but they have been granted righteousness in Christ. Romans 5, verse 19, at the end of the verse, even so through the obedience of the one, the one being Christ, the many will be made righteous. It is by his perfect life and his righteousness that we receive. And lastly here, a true disciple is characterized by fruit. True disciples have fruit in their life, which is evident that they are a true follower of Christ. Someone who has been born again by the power of God and granted a new nature in Christ will bear fruit. James chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I will show you my faith by my works. What James is saying here is that I will display the true faith that I have through the works that I produce. The fruit is evident of what is an inward reality for the believer. A true disciple continues in the word of Christ. They will persevere through persecution and tribulation to the end. They will fight the good fight all the way. In the parable of the sower, the good soil produces fruit. In uh, John chapter 8, verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I do want to make a clarification here that fruit has nothing to do with the basis or conditions by which someone receives salvation. We are talking about the evidence of salvation. Fruit in a person's life is the evidence of genuine faith. A person is saved by faith alone through grace alone. And that true genuine faith that they have produces fruit as an evidence of what is an inward reality. Not the basis for, by which that person receives salvation. Now, we have talked about how some of the differences between a true believer or a true disciple and a false disciple. A true disciple has genuine faith and there are aspects to faith. There are three aspects that we're going to go over. Before we get into our first aspect of knowledge or the intellect of the gospel, I did want to read the parable of the sowers. I think it would be helpful to have this parable on our mind as we go ahead and we look through these aspects of genuine saving faith. So if you guys want to open up to Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. This is the part where Jesus is explaining the parable to his disciples, starting in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the ground. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. 
and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The first aspect of saving faith, genuine faith, is the knowledge. Christianity is knowledge-based. One must understand certain things in order to be saved, who God is. Understanding that there is a God, understanding that he is the creator of everything, he's the creator of every person, understanding that he's holy and just, that we, understanding our depravity and that we have sinned against this holy God, rightly deserving eternal punishment. Understanding our depravity also understands that there is no way that we can work our way to a right relationship with God. There's no way that we can work our way to earn salvation for ourselves. Christ's divinity, his perfect sinless human life, leading to his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, a proper understanding of the way of salvation that God has made for sinful man. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Understanding that one way, Jesus says, I am the way. On the topic of evangelism, um, we need to understand that when we go out sharing the good news of the gospel, a lot of people don't, this is what we do, we share the knowledge of the gospel. Tell people that they are sinners, that they are not right, right relationship with God. But God has made a way for salvation possible through Jesus. Verses that support the necessity of knowing the truth of the gospel. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth. Here we see that the knowledge of truth is what leads to that belief. Romans 10, 13 through 17. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, or how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How they believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And at the end of the verse, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So you have the knowledge or the intellect of the gospel the thing in, of which we believe in. Next, we have the agreement, which is the emotional response to the truth, the emotional response to that gospel, the trust and belief in it. Agreement is the emotional response to the gospel. This is where someone trusts in the gospel. This is where the affections for Christ and his sacrificial life and death start to take root, producing a thankfulness for his kindness and grace towards us. It's also important to understand that it is the power of God and his sovereignty that start to change the affections of someone. John 6, 44, first part of the verse, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. God is sovereign. Simply agreeing that the gospel is true is not enough for salvation. We see in Matthew 13, 20, the one on whom, the, referring to the parable of the sower, 
The one in whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. We see here that there's joy from the good news. But we see that at but we see that this scene that was sold on the rocky places, it is the affliction or persecution which arises from the word. Immediately he falls away because of the word, because of the afflictions of the word. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Demons know who Christ is. They know the truth. There's no repentance or trust in that truth. Simply knowing the truth of the gospel is not enough to save. To trust in something is to rely 100% on the truthfulness and accuracy of it, which results in confident expectation. In regards to the salvation, we are trusting that the word of God is accurate and true. This leads to a confident expectation that God the Father has made a way for salvation possible for sinful man. As scripture proclaims, when you trust in something, you believe wholeheartedly in the accuracy and truthfulness, and you will put all of your faith in that one thing. This level of trust is what results in wholehearted faith that is necessary for salvation. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We haven't seen God. We haven't seen Christ. But we have a hope and faith, and we know that around 2,000 years ago, Christ came to earth, and he lived that sinless life, that he did die on the cross. He did make a way for salvation for sinful man. True disciples have that unwavering faith. They know that when they pass from this world to the next, after this life here on earth, that they will be in the presence of Christ. The alternative uh, to trust in Christ is a trust in self and our own works. However, God makes it very clear that we are not justified by faith alone. That we are justified by faith alone and not by our works. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that one may boast. Now we go into the last element of saving faith is the decision to follow, the action, the turning away from sin and turning to Christ. The last element of saving faith is the decision and the action of following. Motivated by what we know of the gospel and our trust in it, we look to deny ourselves and follow Christ. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You see, this 
two elements to the decision to follow. You have the self-denial and then the action of following Christ. Self-denial, turning away from sinful ways, denying the desires of the flesh, forsaking them, hating them. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all so that they would, for that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We see here the self-denial aspect in both of these verses in Matthew 10 and 2 Corinthians 5.15, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves. And then again in Back in Matthew 10, verse 39, for he who loses his life for my sake. You see here the self-denial. And then turning from self, one must turn to Christ. That 180 degree turn. Following Christ, the action of putting on the fruits of the Spirit, choosing righteousness, following his commands. We see that in both of these verses, not just the call of self-denial, but the call of following Christ. We see back in verse 38 of Matthew 10, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is the call to follow Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.15 at the end of the verse, might no longer live for himself, but for him, for Christ. Matthew 13.23 this is uh, the good soil. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. We see here that a true disciple is one who bears fruit. That fruit is an evidence of an inward reality. This aspect of self-denial and following Christ is repentance which is our next point here, is what is repentance? Real repentance is sorrow over sin because it is an offense and dishonor to God and his holy law. The conversion from sin to righteousness it is a turning away from sin and choosing to follow God. If we remove repentance from the gospel, we're not preaching the true gospel of Jesus. This brings up the issue of lordship salvation. Can you accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord? The Bible does not teach this. It's very popular nowadays in an attempt to appease unregenerate, sinful, false disciples is that you don't need to accept Jesus as your Lord. You can pray a prayer. You can accept him as your Savior and you can be, you can go to heaven but you don't have to accept him as your Lord. You don't have to submit to his authority. You don't have to follow him. The Bible does not teach this. I put a quote here from John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. In other words, a sinner who refuses to repent is not saved, for he cannot cling to his sin and the Savior at the same time. And a sinner who rejects Christ's authority in his life does not have saving faith, for true faith encompasses a surrender to God. Thus the gospel requires more than making an intellectual decision or mouthing a prayer. The gospel message is a call to discipleship. 
Sheep will follow their shepherd in submissive obedience. Here I have an illustration of that conversion, of repentance acted out. We see here in Luke 19, 1 through 9, the conversion of Zacchaeus. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho. He was passing through. There was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd for a small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay in your house. He hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You see here, just in these few verses, someone who is a sinner, who was greedy for riches. You see a complete change. See him give away half of his possessions. And then you see here wanting to make amends with those who he has sinned against. This is repentance acting out. This is an outward expression of the inward reality which has happened. The act of denying self denying the greed, and then following Christ. We accept Christ as Lord and Savior. We do not make a deal for eternal life. Scriptural basis for repentance. These are just a few uh, verses that I put in here that have the call to repent. Paul in Athens at the Oropagus Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Again here, repent is the turning away, self-denial and following Christ. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the good news and calling people to repent. Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to John the Baptist, who was the herald of Christ, calling Israel to repent. We see here in Matthew 3, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit keeping with repentance. Jumping to verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. We see that John the Baptist, when he started his ministry, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel call is not simply to acknowledge facts. It is a complete change of your life. There is a difference between repentance and worldly sorrow. And we can distinguish that. Worldly sorrow is different from godly repentance, which leads to salvation. 
See in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Simply acknowledging that we have sin and even being convicted of that sin, having sorrow for that sin, having worldly sorrow is, is not true repentance. Another example, this is Judas. He felt guilty for what he did. He betrayed Christ. He even tried to return the silver pieces and then ended up taking his own life. Judas was still mastered by his sin. He was not born again by God's power. Compare that to Zacchaeus. He forsook his son, sin, and was no longer enslaved to it, but was mastered by love, which produced fruit in his life, which produced a charitable spirit, a complete opposite of the sin that he was mastered by prior to conversion. Next, repentance is a gift from God. It is only by the power of God that those who are in Christ have a new nature that leads them to forsake their sin and deny themselves and follow Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, Paul is writing to Timothy, giving instruction. The Lord's bondservant must, be not, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. We see here that faith is a gift from God. So is repentance. Saving faith produces repentance. Also, perseverance and repentance. True disciples will persevere to the end. They will remain faithful to God. Philippians 1.6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. It's not on the disciples' ability to continue is by God's power. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see here that God is the one who gives faith. God is the one who gives repentance. God is the one who changes our affections towards him. Makes us born again. False disciples will not persevere. They'll be unfruitful to God. They were never saved to begin with. They were self-deceived. First John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been with us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Again, another verse in Matthew 7, verses, and starting in verse 21, going to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. You see here, the true disciple is the one who does the will of the Father, the one who follows Christ. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This verse in corresponding with 1 John 2.19, Jesus never knew them. These people did not have, did not believe and trust in the true gospel. It was a Jesus, a man-made Jesus that they had mixed in with their own works that they had their trust into. You can see that their very proclamation before God, before Christ here, is things that they've done, not on the basis of what Christ has done. You can see where their trust is in. Lastly here, a true disciple has a new identity in Christ, a new nature. A new nature of a true disciple is one that has been freed from the enslavement of sin and the flesh through the power of God. True disciples have been given a new nature that no longer practices sin, but seeks to honor and glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, the new has come. A true disciple is free, not just from the punishment of sin, but from the enslavement to sin. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and follow Christ in submissive obedience to, to his commands. Romans 6, 13 through 14. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but prevent, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Important note here is that this does not mean that a true disciple does not struggle with sin, but their attitude towards sin has changed drastically. Rather than being enslaved to sin and having no choice, true disciples have the Holy Spirit. They have been given power to battle sin and have victory over it. Sin is no longer a pleasure. Sin is a snare. You know, God gives that new desire to hate sin, follow Christ through their new nature. A true disciple has a new master rather than being enslaved to sin. The new master is Christ and Christ alone. It is in Christ and Christ alone that we put our trust and hope in for salvation. The true gospel is that Christ is the only way. We cannot have partial trust in Christ and partial trust in something else. This goes back to the elements of saving faith. You have knowledge, agreement, and then the action. Well, what do you know? There are a lot of different understandings of the knowledge of the gospel. There's only one true knowledge. Christ is the only way. You can see it in even Paul's early writings in the Galatians. People already start to add Christ plus. Christ plus what? Christ plus works plus doing something else. What is your trust in? A true disciple acknowledges that Christ is the only way. One cannot cling to sin and Christ at the same time. No one can have two masters. The master-slave relationship is different from modern employer-slash-employee relationships. A person can have two employers, but to be a slave requires continual and total devotion to the desires and goals of only one person. 
thereby making service to anyone else an impossibility. This is the devotion of a true disciple to Christ. Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, for he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Lastly, we see that a true disciple has a new family. True disciples have Christ's body, the church, as a new family and community that loves and cares for one another and does the will of God, the Father, for his glory. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, he, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Some said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside, standing outside, seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. A true disciples in this community of believers, Christ's body, Again, in Romans 12, verse 4 through 5, for just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. See here that a true disciple is in that body of Christ which cares for one another, which feels the sorrow of other individuals, the joy. So we see here the elements of saving faith, knowing the true gospel, knowing that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, hearing the good news, understanding who God is, who we are, before being saved, depraved, unwilling to make amends with God, unwilling to make that relationship right, and then trusting in it. 100% in that gospel that Christ came, that he lived that sinner's death, completely emptying ourselves of hope in ourselves, completely clinging to Christ in the work that he has done. And then that motivation produces repentance. That repentance is a evidence of what has happened internally to a true disciple. To make disciples means teaching to observe everything that Christ has taught. Teaching and admonishing, encouraging, correcting. All are part of this process and are done with the motivation of love towards one another as we seek to glorify God with how we live our lives. You see here that repentance isn't just a one-time act. There is a point at which you go from death to life and you repent of your sins, you turn to Christ. But the life of a true disciple continues on that route. You continue repenting, turning from your sin, denying self and following Christ. Many people have prayed a prayer, but far fewer have received the Savior. We must proclaim a gospel that calls people to turn from sin to the Savior, from dead works to Christ's righteousness and from vain idols to the one true and living God as revealed in Christ Jesus. 
right. And then lastly here, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We see here that what one does with their life is evidence of what has happened internally. And that is what I have. And now I can open it up to any questions. I will do my best to, uh, to answer them. And if I don't know the answer, I'll get the answer for you. No neutrality here on one side or the other, right? All right? You do not accept Christ to receive healing or to get something of this world. Jenny? Yep, I get where you're... The emotion response, you know, agreement, obviously with the facts of the gospel, and the emotion um, is starting where you have that sorrow for what the, God, what the news brings, right, of what sin is, our state before God. You know, it is, a, it is an emotional response to the gospel. Um, you have sorrow for sin, and then you're motivated by love 
and thankfulness to follow Christ. Ricky? Right. Emotion is important, but just like how someone can have wrong knowledge, they could have wrong emotion um, based on wrong knowledge. Um, yes. Right, the, in that correct <clears throat> trust towards the gospel, love for Christ then, then produces repentance, which is something that we can see in a true disciple's life. For example, like Zacchaeus. Um, you know, there are two, actually, you may be 
cut to the heart. Um, they were pricked um, in their consciences. So there's that element of realization that, boy, I have offended the holy God, and but now I do not want to be against him. I want to be for him. So there is a, a whole being response, and I guess that's really what um, is about um, based on truth. So it's not a produced by gimmicks or meddling of the word. Um, I, you know, I sometimes I feel like that there's a lot of stories that people tell and they're trying to really um, push emotions. So people will make a decision at altar calls and all these different things where the focus is on emotions but not on the truth of the gospel. And we have the other example of Judas that you, you mentioned. Right? There was uh, a somewhat of an understanding there. Uh, there was an emotional response. There was deep grief. But there was no action return because it wasn't based on uh, what Christ has instituted as a way of salvation. So um, maybe that helps. I guess I have another question for you. Um, and I want you to comment a little bit more, Cody, on this uh, last point there. So, someone doesn't have that desire to be with the people of God. Um, what I would say to that person is to really evaluate what they know to be true about the gospel and what Christ calls them to. You know, the part of this new creation, the new nature, yeah, we do have that family. We do have that that body of believers. You know, in, I can't remember off the top of my head, but in Hebrews, you know, do not forsake the fellowship of gathering together. You know, where's the accountability of believers getting together and, you know, gently admonishing one another in teaching and growing in the holiness towards God to worship Him. Um, a lot of times when someone doesn't want to be go to go to church or be around other believers, a lot of times is they don't want to feel conviction. They don't want to be corrected. That could be an element. But I would say that's definitely a, a red flag and an element of, you know, evaluate, you know, to see if you if you are in the faith of you know, you are called to serve serve the body. 
Everyone has spiritual gifts. Those gifts are for not for yourselves, but for or others and serving. Godly sorrow for sin. Yeah. Godly sorrow for sin produces uh, repentance and following Christ. Yeah, the verse that I used. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. You know, that repentance is not just having sorrow over sin that um, we commit, understanding the penalty of that, and understanding that that sin was paid for by Christ. It's not a free forgiveness. We were purchased by him. But, but then the other aspect of that 
godly sorrow or repentance is then following Christ, putting off uh, the old self, denying, and then following Christ, putting on and following his commandments. There's a couple of verses that come to mind uh, for me. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, the mourning of one's sin and the grief uh, that it causes to God uh, for uh, our own sin, not, um, not necessarily related to worldly consequences, uh, but where, where does that Yeah, that uh, like we said, darling, the the response to truth, understanding for what it is, it's not a worldly sorrow rooted in feeling bad for worldly consequences, but truly understanding that sin is an offense against a holy God. therapeutic gospel of coming to Christ to fix certain issues that people want to have fixed. Let's say you have a physical ailment. Let's say you have, you want to be blessed financially or you want to have, you want to get certain earthly things. Um, And so what people will do is they'll play at that sinful desire and then they will package Christ as he is your answer and they'll take verses and they twist it and they promise people that, you know, accept Christ and you'll be prosperous. He wants you to have earthly blessings. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be happy and he'll even give you power to create things with uh, your words. And so people who are looking after these things fall victim to that. 
but it is still driven by their sin of attaining that. And they believe that, and they believe this gospel, and they believe that they, it's a false gospel. And, uh, and it's not, it doesn't persevere. And that's why a lot of people who preach this type of gospel, you, like you said, they're false disciples, and you can't see repentance in their life. You can see that that whole gospel of material things or earthly things or health or whatever it may be, it's all earthly focused, not heavenly focused, not for the glory of God, but the self-exaltation of self, not denying self. Is that good at it? Alrighty. Well, thank you guys very much. I guess I'll just close us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who has made a way for salvation. We just pray, Lord, that you can give us humility and gentleness as we look to evangelize those who don't have the true gospel, that we can be gentle, that we can be loving towards those to bring them the true truth of the gospel, Lord, that you call them to repent. Lord, pray that we will go and proclaim that true gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you will just have our motives in the right place. We do this for glorifying you. Thank you again for this time that we can come to get to that we can come and we can get together as a family, as a body of believers to grow in your word. In your name I pray, amen.